In my office, we get a lot of requests. Hey, Joan, would you consider facilitating a board retreat for our organization? Our first question is always some variation of, why are you having one? Or what's the goal? In my experience, way too often the response is some variation of, oh, we really need to have one. Or, oh, we haven't had one in a really long time. Or, we really need to get everyone on the same page about, and then there's this kind of trailing off about what we need to be on the same page about, and it lacks a little bit of focus and clarity. So I happen to believe deeply in retreats, and I think they are often big, fat, missed opportunities. And there's several reasons. Let's see, where would I start? Lack of clarity about the why. Um, either no outside support or a lack of understanding of the important role that outside support plays, not just in directing traffic, but in designing and bringing out the best of the group during the retreat. Uh, what else? No clear action items. Uh, the retreat ends with some ideas that things that should happen and that there aren't people assigned to them and there's no accountability mechanism. And then those list of action items, the next time they appear is actually the next time you do a retreat when someone says, didn't we have action items from that last retreat? Now more than ever, boards need to operate effectively, providing strategic partnership to the staff. Struggling nonprofits must rely on boards more so than ever for expertise, for growing reach and influence of your work. Our guest today, like me, is a nonprofit consultant who's brought in as an executive coach and who helps build strong boards. So today we're going to banter about the role a great retreat can play in building an effective board and a thriving organization. While we're at it, I'm guessing we might just chat about how retreats have gone virtual, maybe how the coaching business works, and what our work is telling us about trends in the sector. As always, you can count on me to keep it real and practical. Let's get to it. Greetings, and welcome to my podcast, Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary. In my work, I offer counsel and advice to CEOs and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a keynote speaker, an author of a best-selling book with a very novel name, Joan Gary's Guide to Nonprofit Leadership, and I'm a columnist for the Chronicle of Philanthropy. I'm also the co-founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, an online membership site where we help small nonprofits thrive. But most of all, I consider myself a compassionate truth teller and a champion for board and staff leaders. In my podcast, I dig deep into the issues faced by nonprofit leaders. You can always count on getting my personal point of view, and you can count on experts who will share their expertise in fields ranging from fundraising to leadership transitions, to team building, to board management, to organizational strategy, to self-care. The list goes on. So welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Let's get started. Dolph Goldenberg is a nonprofit consultant with experience in the trenches as a nonprofit CEO with roles at the William Way LGBTQ Community Center in Philadelphia and the interim CEO at Brooklyn Community Pride, the Trans Legal Defense and Education Fund, and the Southwest Center in Phoenix. Dolph also has more than a decade of fundraising experience soliciting six-figure gifts, developing successful donated asset programs, increased annual campaign revenue, and he's written a whole posse full of grants that have resulted in millions of dollars. His consulting practice focuses on board development, strategic planning, and executive transitions for clients such as Centerlink, 
the Zebra Coalition, One Orlando Alliance, the Georgia Center for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing, Hope Atlanta, and Georgia Lawyers for the Arts. While almost all of Dolph's engagements include some board development, some of Dolph's favorite board development engagements were with The Loft, Sheltering Arms, Legacy Decatur, and Pebble Tossers. The, the, um, I don't know if the Atlanta thing and the Decatur thing made you realize Dolph, is from, Dolph lives in Atlanta. Dolph also has significant experience as a nonprofit board member, which is always helpful, including a successful board co-chair for Centerlink. Dolph is an author, and he has written a book called Successful Nonprofits Build Supercharged Boards. He has a master's of public administration from the Andrew Young School of Policy at Georgia State and is a Georgia State undergrad. He also earned a board source certificate of nonprofit board consulting. And yes, he lives in Atlanta with his husband. Dolph, I'm delighted you're here. And thank you for sharing your insights and your advice. Hey, Joan, thank you so much. It's great to be here. So Dolph, I want, I plan to begin. Um, I, I, I'd like to begin by asking you about how you got into consulting uh, and to, to, you know, give re- listeners a sense of um, what you enjoy about consulting and the kind of consulting work you do. That is such a great question. And the joke among consultants is none of us, when we were five, six, seven years old, said, I'm going to grow up and become a consultant. But I actually believe the seeds of me becoming a consultant were planted when I was a kid. And the reason for that is I'm the child of a refugee. And one of the things is not true of all refugees, but a lot of us that grow up in immigrant and refugee households grow up in really entrepreneurial households. Right. And so my parents had multiple businesses. And let me say, and I'm not slamming them because, you know, my, my parents, I, lo- I love them. They're amazing people. But these were businesses that really, really struggled. But so I grew up in this really entrepreneurial household. And from a very young age, I found myself starting businesses at seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old. I opened a candy store. I started having carnivals. And so early on, I got like this bug of, oh, I want to be an entrepreneur. But then laid on top of that, in high school, I had two traumatic experiences. One of those is um, I came out of the, out of the closet uh, in my last year of high school. And in the 1980s, that was something that, that kids just really didn't do very often. Right. And about the same time, my parents went bankrupt. So coming off of those relatively traumatic experiences... I went to college and said, I'm, I'm going to change the world as a social worker. And I got my bachelor's of social work. And I set off to, to literally change the world. I will also share with you that I was a wide-eyed and really naive young case manager who very quickly moved into fundraising and grant writing mm-hmm. and kind of found a place for me in grant writing. And so... At about the age of 23 or 24 was the first time I interacted with a consultant in a professional way. And it was actually a consultant from uh, the firm Cooper's Library, which uh, you know was a really a powerhouse consulting firm at the time. And I will share with you, I was blown away by, by this person. And I thought, oh my gosh, this person has my dream job. Huh. But first, I, yeah, that's really what I thought. I was like, oh my gosh, this person has my dream job. But first, I want to become an executive director. So I got myself on the track to become an executive director. But every time I was in a 
anything that was facilitated by a consultant, whether it was a board retreat, a staff retreat, a strategic planning process, anything, I would think this person has my dream job. So so essentially the seeds were planted really early and I kind of knew that this is where I was going to end up. But I'm I'm so I'm so intrigued by this because I you know I always joke when when I when I'm doing a keynote speech or something I'll say what did you want to be when you grew up to a room full of people and and I always joke and I say I bet none of you is going to raise your hand and say I want to grow up to ask people for money I I suspect that I'll that not too many people will say I want to grow up to be a consultant. Well, and, and exactly. And when I was a kid, I was not thinking consultant, but I was thinking something that's entrepreneurial. Yep. And then once I was in high school, I was thinking something that helps people. And the con- consultant kind of merges that together. Yeah. But I'll also share with you that I did not think I would be a consultant as early as I became one. So I became a consultant in my mid forties. Mm-hmm. In my head, I was thinking, eh, you know, toward the end of my fifties or in my sixties, maybe that'll be a good transition to consulting. And, uh, I had, I had what a lot of people have, but don't often talk about it is I had a career blow up. So my second permanent executive director job, I completely and totally burned out. Mm-hmm. I, I started that, that job right as the, 2008, 2009 recession was happening. And by just sheer force, we kept the organization together. We actually grew the organization over about a four-year period. We grew the organization by 25%. And up to now, what's been the worst recession of our lifetime, we're now in the worst recession of our Mm -hmm. lifetime, but what up to that point had been the worst recession. And I will share with you though, that I did that at a tremendous personal cost to myself. And I literally completely and totally burned out. I became a toxic human being. I was a terrible boss. I was a terrible spouse. Like there were very few areas of my life where I was really the kind of person that I authentically and genuinely am. And so I, I sort of intentionally blew up my career. I, I looked at my contract. My contract said I had to get three months notice. So I gave three months notice. Um, and then I, I, although I'll also say, the board came back and said, how about 18? And I scratched my head. I was like, no, no, I'm going to, I'm going to just be in a horrible place in 18 more months. I can't. So we, we, we agreed on somewhere in between three and 18. And I, I took eight months off and I, I traveled the world. I, um, I, I went to a few different continents and really spent a lot of time just doing soul searching and rediscovering who I am and rediscovering my, my, my compassion and my passion and the reason and purpose I was put on this earth. So when I came back, obviously I was still still young in my mid forties, and I'm like, well, I've got to do something for the next thirty years because I can't retire now. Till I'm seventy two. I just took eight months off. <laughs> so yeah, so you know, so I, I ultimately I was like, you know, I think really what I want to do is I want to be a consultant and I want to help organizations thrive without individuals having to destroy their life in the process. And so everything I, I do I revolves every, around that. Yep, I love everything about that. I, one quick question, and then I want to sort of move into some practical conversation about retreats and board building. Um, <clears throat> did you come to the realization that you were burned out yourself? So, so, you know, you and I as coaches, we actually see people on the brink. We see people over the edge, we see people heading towards the edge. Um, 
And I'm sure both of us have been in situations where we have actually called that out for a client. Did somebody call it out for you or did you actually just see it? So I was called out on it and I was called out on it by the staff of the organization I was leading because mm. they essentially said, Dolph, you're a, you're a horrible person to work for. Mm. And, you know, cognitive dissonance is something really powerful when, when, 40 or 50% of the people around you are all saying you're a horrible person to work for and you don't think of yourself that way, there's only two ways you you can reconcile it. And the healthiest way is to take that step back and go, oh yeah, um, I I am past the edge of burnout. <laughs> I am crispy. <laughs> Put a fork in him. He is done. Um, so the the segue to coaching executive directors to enable them to be effective and still actually have a personal life uh, and have some semblance of self care that that path makes a lot of sense to me. Um, uh, let's talk a little bit about um, why boards matter. Why do they matter? What what have you learned about why boards matter? And it seems like such a simple question, but um, I'm doing a presentation this afternoon to a group of board members, and I don't think they really get why boards matter. And until you actually can wrap your arms around that, I don't think you can be a good board member. So let's start there, and then we'll get to the how do you gather them together in a way that makes sense. And I, I'm sure this probably rings true for you too, but I think I can sum up the question, why do boards matter in, in this sentence? An organization can thrive through the sheer force of a great executive director, but it takes a strong board and a great board for that organization to thrive over the course of decades as executive directors transition in and out every five or 10 years. So for an organization to be long-term successful, it has to have a strong board. Uh, I think that's uh, absolutely right. I mean, I, you know, the way that I talk about it is that um, a thriving nonprofit is kind of like a twin engine jet. The great jet can't fly on only one engine. And when you actually frame it that way for board members, they, they, they get a greater understanding that this is much more of a partnership, more than a sort of the mindset shift goes from, uh, how can we help you, Dolph, as the burning out executive director, to, uh, okay, what should this partnership look like? What do we bring to the table that adds value, providing oversight and good counsel and engagement and all of those sorts of things? So, the truth of the matter is that very few organizations can or should have all the resources that they need to exist without a board. So, um, uh, and I think that, that uh, don't, let me actually, let me ask you this question, Dolph. Um, don't you think that there are executive directors that when you ask why board matters, why boards matter, that they actually have the wrong answer? I do, because it's interesting. I, I, oftentimes you'll hear an executive director say, well, they need to do fundraising. Or to me, the even worse answer are the EDs that say, well, it's legally required, and that's why we have to have a board. But those are probably also executive directors who have never had a great board. Um, absolutely right. So um, one of the things that uh, there's a 
a very good book, uh, Governance as Leadership, that talks about the power of creating a cohesive unit in order for a board to really thrive, which is, I, I think, at the heart of sort of why board retreats matter. Um, but let's talk about uh, your philosophy about board retreats. Why have them? How often to have them? And what makes one like a total home run? That is such a good question. My, my general philosophy on board retreats, I do think it's a good idea for boards to have a retreat every year to 18 months. But I will say, I don't think they should have it just because they say, oh, it's August and it's time for our board retreat, or it's February and it's time for our board retreat. I think in the ideal world, the board is asking itself, what is our next step in governance? And can we spend four to six hours really diving deep as a group on that next step in governance. And let me say that 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 could be many things. It could be the culmination of a strategic planning process where the board all needs to get an alignment in the on the direction of a, of a plan. It could be a launch plan for the success of your new chief executive. Because again, you know, if we hire chief executives and do not provide them with the support mentoring and coaching necessary to be successful, we should not scratch our heads and wonder why they leave after 18 months. But, you know, that that is great work to be done in a board retreat. Also, you know, things like um, a board taking a step back and saying, let's do a board evaluation, whether it's something really that's uh, tried and true, like the board source evaluation, or if it's something that they just do on their own. But taking that step back and saying, let's do a board evaluation and let's figure out what our next steps and governance are and spend that half day or that full day moving ourselves forward. It's about the board moving itself forward. So um, would you argue that that you have a board retreat when the organization is at some kind of inflection point or is that necessary? So an inflection point is a great time to have a board retreat, but when you are, when you're not at that inflection point is a good time to be doing your housekeeping things like, Hey, we've not done an, an evaluation in 18 months. Let's do our evaluation or, or as an example, huh? Our committees are not functioning as well as they used to. Let's have a board retreat where we spend the entire time talking about what committees we should have and how they're going to function. So when someone knocks on your door and says, hey, Dolph, will you um, facilitate a retreat? And, and let's, let's put this in the pre-COVID land where retreats happened in person. Um, how do you know when you're chatting, presumably... Well, who do you chat with to make a decision about whether you're the right person to facilitate the retreat? Um, and um, how do you know in that conversation that you can actually have an impact? That is, those are two great questions. So typically, I typically want to have a conversation together with the chief executive and leadership of the board. Sometimes that's a board chair or co-chair. Sometimes, you know, it's the governance chair who's responsible for making sure the retreat goes well. So some some level of leadership with the board. And in that conversation, I want to explore what they're hoping to get out of the retreat. And if they aren't sure what they're hoping to get, then to have that conversation of, all right, let's talk about some things that you might be looking for from a retreat. And honestly, everything after that is, are they committed to doing the work and are they committed to doing the follow-up? I'm in a unique position where 
there have been times, and it does not happen often, but there have been times that a board or an organization will approach me. And after a couple conversations, I just have to say, you know, I'm, I'm not a great fit for you. And the vast majority of the time, it's because I don't feel there's a commitment on the part of the board. So the board wants to check the box and say, yes, we've done this, but they don't want to do the work. All right. So now I'm a, now I'm going to, let's do some role playing here, Dolph. I'm a CEO and my board chair and I have determined that we, it's, it, it makes sense to do a retreat and let's assume that there's some inflection point. Maybe it's the strategic plan or something. Let's assume it's a strategic plan. Um, I ask this question a lot. Um, what should we be looking for when we interview facilitators? Right. I'm going to interview somebody's going to give me three referrals. They're going to talk to Dolph. They're going to talk to Joan. They're going to talk to Juan. Um, what are they looking for and how do they know who the right person is? What's the criteria for, for the person to run their retreat for them? So I think the first thing is they want someone who has been there before and gotten people to where they want to go. And so I, I think that's the first thing is they kind of want to feel that piece out. The, the second is, you know, fit is a really big component. We all walk around with different personalities. And is this a personality that's going to mesh well with staff leadership and with the board? And is, is, it the, is it the right, not just also personality, but perspective and, and process. So ideally, every consultant has a different process. Uh, just as a quick aside, um, I, it's one of the reasons I don't respond to RFPs because so often I will get an RFP and it will say, we want someone to lead a board retreat. This is what they're going to do from eight to nine, and nine to 10 and 10 to 11. And I just have an auto reply that, you know, I just, I just insert in there and go, Hey, thanks so much for considering me. I'm not the right person. But what's the problem with that? I mean, that's a, that's an organization that's really thought it through Dolph. Like why, why wouldn't you say, Hey, these people got it going on. Well, and, and so, so that's a great question. And that's where the consultant's process comes in. So every consultant has a process and they have refined that process and it works well for them. It would, it would be almost like hiring a, a portrait painter and saying, okay, I, I know that, you know, normally you have a cubist style, but could you please do this and, uh, you know, to make it look more like Renoir did it. And, you know, then, then really what you need to go do is hire a painter that can make it look like Renoir. So the way I think about it is if somebody, if somebody comes to me and is that clear about sort of what they want, then they only need a traffic cop. So then all you need to do is, and I'm not even sure you need to hire somebody to do that, get a volunteer who, um, who is going to just essentially uh, keep the cue and uh, has good enough handwriting so that you can read what, uh, what they write on the flip charts, because that's actually all you need. So I think one of the things that Dolph is talking about here is that um, you, have to, uh, you have to go into looking for a facilitator, understanding what you want from that facilitator. And uh, so when I when I'm interviewed for uh, board retreats, um, I actually make it really clear that facilitator doesn't actually do the trick in terms of what it is I do. Um, that a facilitator is someone to me who who is a traffic cop, and you could get somebody, and that's not a that's not a bad role for somebody to have. It's just you don't need to pay me for that, right? 
that I think of that I think of myself as to your uh, to continue with your metaphor that my experience with boots on the ground, which you refer to as both an, who has sat at every seat on the nonprofit table. Um, that I, you want me involved as a thought partner in designing the, um, the retreat that is going to hit the mark of the goals that are set. And so, um, uh, I'm working with a client now where the organization is not really accustomed to the facilitator playing such an active role in, uh, in the design of the retreat. I think they're actually getting that it's, really useful. But what I say is, okay, when you hire me, you're getting uh, probably the thing I do the least well is keep the cue. Um, but I'm part, uh, I'm part facilitator. I'm part coach. I'm part educator. I'm a cattle prod. Like I'm a, I'm a, right. I'm all of those things. Um, so that the experience has a dimension to it that has value and impact across the board. And I, and I, I think that's what I'm hearing in your comment about an RFP where the schedule is all set. Um, they actually probably don't need you really. Right. Right. A- absolutely. And, and I think you're hundred percent right. There's so much of a value add that we bring in because we spend at this point, every day of our working lives, helping organizations solve problems. And so when you see dozens or hundreds of problems in a year, you, you're kind of able to categorize and say, oh, I've seen this before. I've seen this four times before. And here are some various ways that it can be dealt with. It's hard for me to, to, to ask the question, how do you know your retreat has been successful without saying, well, did we actually hit the goals? And, you know, retreat surveys at the end of, uh, of retreats are very, very important. People spend way too much time designing them and volunteers spend too much time at them not to provide that kind of feedback. But recognize, let's assume that the goals have been hit. How do you know when the, when you go home after a retreat that you've facilitated, how do you know it's been a success? What are the, what are the things that happen in that room that make you say, yeah, that was a good day at the office for Dolph Goldenberg. So in addition to hitting the goals, some other indicators of, of success are at the end of the day, the board members feel closer than they were before. There's a greater sense of hope and optimism in the room. Even if it started, you know, at a pretty high level, there's an even greater sense of, yeah, we are going to do great things together. And so I think a lot of it, other than hitting the goals, are those intangibles. The the other piece, though, frankly, is, and I almost always do this, is this check-in with the chief executive. You know, how, how did you feel about it? And a chief executive who walks away saying, yes, this is moving the board in the right direction is also a really good sign the retreat was successful. I will share with you something I almost always do. Uh, typically, one quarter after the retreat is I schedule, uh, typically remote, but I schedule a meeting with the board chair and the chief executive. And my the whole point is, hey, let's talk about the things that you decided on that you said you were going to work on following this retreat. And let's just have a quick check-in and see how that's going and see if we can brainstorm any workarounds if we need to. And there's nothing like knowing that I'm going to do that to get boards to keep moving forward. Depending on depending on the size of the organization and what, what's going on and what the action items are that come out, um, I've had some success in 
creating a sort of a retreat task force that um, that follows those action items uh, meets maybe once a month that um, that in an all staff meeting or a board meeting there is a report out about the things that happened at that retreat because remember too a board retreat um, happens you know you have a staff who knows there's a board retreat happening and it's happening somewhere else and it's what are they talking about and what kind of implications does that have for me? Because at the end of the day, you know, we're all pretty selfish human beings in some ways, right? And so communicating what the action items are, what the retreat accomplished, and then some kind of accountability mechanism, either Dolph's idea of the quarterly thing or a task force can make a big difference. Um, I want to talk about icebreakers in one in one second, but I have a, um, a little uh, sort of equation that I use about retreats, that every retreat has to have a dose of three things. Um, it has to inform, right? Uh, it has to enrich and it has to engage. And that if you can inform and enrich and engage, you can ignite your board members to be the kind of ambassadors your organization needs and that your cause or your clients deserve. And I feel like um, executive directors are mighty good at informing. Let me show you my good book report. Uh, Enriching, I don't think they think enough about, which is, hey, what's the landscape around us look like? Or let's bring in somebody who is a funder in the space who can give us a, a sense of the sector. Uh, engagement is, you know, legit, authentic. I, I am thinking about path one, path two, and path three. I think there are pros and cons of each, and I'd like to kick the tires with you. Um, and that if you can inform, enrich, and engage then then you stand a chance to get a board that fundraises. And if you don't, you won't. And so I think those are elements that have to be, in my mind, that have to be uh, present in a retreat um, in order to do what a retreat should do best. Um, Talk to me about, uh, um, people hate talking about icebreakers, but I actually want to talk about them for just a second. And then I want to move, uh, then I want to move some, some final thoughts about your process and then tackle a couple of other, con, uh, a couple of other topics before we end. Um, what do you think about icebreakers? Why do they get such a bad rep? And do you have people who will say to you, I want you to facilitate this report retreat, <clears throat> but I'm telling you, Dolph, uh, if you're an icebreaker guy, we don't want you. So I, I did actually have a board chair say to me in the last year, we don't want any forced fun at our retreat. We don't. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, admittedly, if it feels like forced fun, yeah, you really don't want it. It's I, you know, not like, fun. Yeah. You know, it, it's one of the reasons why recess is fun, but PE was not because PE you had to go do what someone else told you to do and recess. You just got to run around, Yeah, you know? And, and so um, it's interesting. Oftentimes what I try to do are have activities that move the board forward while also engaging and helping the board have fun. So let me give you a couple of examples. Yeah, that'd be great. So when when we do strategic planning, typically we take a really close look at the mission. 
And one, you know, there's a lot of things I'm not agnostic about. One of the things I'm not agnostic about is the work group that, that does a ton of work before the board retreat needs to develop a draft mission that's 10 words or less. You know, no more of these three paragraph missions. And the work group always warns me, well, the board's going to have a really tough time accepting this eight, nine, 10 word mission because people are really attached to this paragraph and that paragraph, et cetera. So then what we'll do, and it's a little bit of an icebreaker, but they don't know it is. So what we'll do is we'll take three by five cards. We'll write the draft new mission, one word on each card. Um, so I'll do that before the retreat. And then I'll take the old mission and I'll write one word on e- on a three by five card. And so you end up with in one, one group gets a stack of eight, nine or 10 cards. And the other group gets a stack of like 70 cards. And so we divide up into two groups and we say, okay, you've got four minutes to try to unscramble the mission, no one can go online. And it is incredibly fun. Uh, I will also share with you though, is it's also incredible then to see board members who maybe were really committed to the old mission when they realize they can't unscramble it, that it's that wordy and that complicated, suddenly they're willing to give up the old mission. So it's fun and it moves the board forward. Uh, it's a great, it's a, that's a great one. And I think the reason that icebreakers get bad reps is because they are not they they are not aligned with the retreat right is that they don't have some alignment they seem like that thing you do uh you know oh gosh we're not we're going to do you know a ropes course or something you know it's like people i think that's why they get a bad rep is cuz i think facilitators do a really lousy job of coming up with ways in which to integrate an icebreaker as you've suggested Dolph into so that it actually feels like a really important part of the of the day and um i believe that they actually are essential um because Every single thing you read, whether I wrote it or Dolph wrote it or somebody else wrote it, will tell you that an organization that has any kind of any kind of inflection point or any kind of trauma or trouble or transition or bumpy road, if the board feels cohesive, you stand a really good chance of navigating through that well. And if the board is simply a collection of individuals, you're at very high risk for that disruption to be highly problematic. And in fact, I think that's something that I'm seeing a lot now is that in this time of such traumatic disruption in our world, um, the boards that too many boards are simply collections of individuals and they are not connected cohesively and therefore they're not operating at full throttle. And I think that's a huge issue. And, and if I can just add on to that, because I am in full alignment with you on that, one of the icebreakers I always recommend, and I'd say about half of the time boards take me up on it, is after the retreat has ended, that all the board members and their spouses go have dinner somewhere together. And so if the retreat ends at four, everybody gathers at six o'clock at a restaurant and they all just kind of have dinner as a group. So they then start to get to know each other. But then also, and this is where I've seen it be really transformational, then spouses start to get to know each other because boards serve often means being away from home some nights or weekends. And then spouses start to make plans with each other. Like, oh, doll, Frank's going to be out of town for this retreat. So let's you and I go do this together. 
Uh, it's interesting because I think that the the general school of thought is that dinner should happen as an as an opening session rather than a closing one. And you pick it. Do you pick the ending because the retreat has happened and it gives more um, potential uh, fodder for conversation? I, I think that. I also think it feels more celebratory and. Because because spouses are invited, I think it's also a nice way to say to the spouse, hey, thank you for giving us your partner for the day. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's a that's a big appreciation that should 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 tee off almost every board retreat. Uh, thank you for donating your spouse to uh, please thank your spouse for donating you to the to the organization. Um, uh, let's talk about um uh, I'm looking at the time and thinking we probably don't have a whole lot of time. We are actually having a good conversation about board retreats with Dolph Goldenberg, who uh, is a kindred spirit of mine, a nonprofit ex- uh, consultant with experience in the trenches as a nonprofit CEO and as a leader of a board. Um, lots of uh, uh, lots of work in the LGBT movement, as well as. Um, the arts, the hard of hearing, um, uh, there's just a, a vast array of organizations across multiple sectors that Dolph has, um, has worked with both as a coach and as somebody who is deeply committed to creating effective boards. Um, so we don't live in a time where retreats happen in person, do we? Um, <laughs> And I don't know when actually, when that time will again emerge. Um, you were telling me that you did your first virtual retreat and I wanted to hear about it. I wanted to hear about what you learned, what worked, uh, and advice for uh, executive directors and board chairs who might be listening about, you know, people who are saying, oh, well, we should wait, right? We should wait until such unnamed point in the future when we can all gather together. So um, what is a vir- what was your first virtual retreat like and what were the pluses and the deltas? Um, and based on that, uh, it, do you think it's valuable enough not to wait? So I actually facilitated my first virtual board retreat at the end of March. So just as COVID was heating up all up and down the East Coast. And it was a, a strategic planning retreat. The planning process started in January is for a performing arts organization. And let me just say that, you know, COVID has really impacted performing arts organizations because if, you know, if what you do is live in person performing arts, you can't bring people together in theaters. So, it, you know, so, so we'd started this process in January. And we'd gotten really far along. We'd already had this board retreat scheduled for three months into the process so that we could, as a work group, present the environmental scan to the full board and talk about recommendations. And typically the way that retreat would look when it could be in person is we would spend um, a couple hours in the morning doing interactive activities that really highlight the environmental scan so that the board feels like they've been on this three-month journey with the work group and they understand what's come out of the scan. And then then the board breaks out into work groups and starts to work on specific areas of the plan after that. And so this is typically about a five, sometimes a six-hour retreat with a break for lunch. Now, when we realized two weeks before the retreat, we were going to have to take this retreat virtual. 
we all looked at each other and said, there is no way we're going to pull off a five-hour or a six-hour Zoom retreat. It's not going to happen. It's going to be really painful. So we did a, a major restructure. We sent out everything that was a part of the environmental scan ahead of time. We, uh, we did ask folks to take a look at it. We also know that not everybody's going to read every page. So we still plan to walk people through it, but we were going to go through it a little bit more quickly. We actually scheduled uh, a, th- a three-hour retreat with, um, yeah, I know you're looking at me at three hours. So we scheduled a three hour retreat with an hour break in the middle. So we met for 90 minutes and then we all, and literally like, you know, like we closed the Zoom window. We all left the retreat. We all walked downstairs or wherever and talked to someone and, you know, we're not on a Zoom call. And then we came back for the second half of the retreat. Um, and so in that, in that three hour total session, we, really went through the environmental scan. And then we talked about next steps. And instead of doing breakout groups immediately following the environmental scan, we then scheduled the breakout groups for individually for two weeks following the retreat. And so really what it did was it stretched out the work of the retreat by two weeks, which is not ideal. But if you're going to get the work done, really it's much better to stretch it out and not have people have Zoom exhaust. So I, um, I like all of that. Um, so I had uh, a similar experience where uh, I had designed uh, in this really lovely thought partnership with my client to do an in-person thing that started with a dinner the night before. So it basically went from sort of 4 p.m. one day to 4 p.m. the next. And a couple of pieces of advice that I'd, I'd suggest to listeners as they add on to, and I add on to what Dolph has said here. Um, <clears throat> when you have people on Zoom uh, for some portion of uh, uh, an activity, you actually have them, they actually attend, I don't mean, and I don't mean physically, you actually have their attention in a way that you sometimes don't in real time, unless you have a severe ground rule about phones and things like that. But I, I'm I'm here to say I have, my experience has been that people on Zoom actually pay a lot of attention. Um, the second thing that I would say is that um, uh, things like landscape analyses or sector things, they're, they're actually webinar-like events. And so they're perfect for Zoom. So it can actually get you to that sort of enrich piece of a retreat. And so I, I think about that. Um, uh, breakout groups. So I'm actually doing breakout groups all in up. So I, I'm doing something that's longer than what Dolph described. And I, um, I'm not, Zoom webinar has a breakout function, but what I'm actually doing is I'm setting up separate Zoom rooms. So I'm pre-assigning people into breakout groups and they're going to separate Zoom rooms. So I have less likelihood of technical snafu. Um, and, um, uh, and, um, Yeah, and I think we're also doing a little bit more sort of education, sort of board 101 stuff, things you can do um, via Zoom that, um, that, that can be more effective. Here's the other thing. Engage people using your Zoom chat. I have really found that quiet, introverted board members will put something in a Zoom chat that will, will zing the whole room uh, and that they would not have said in person. So use it and also build into your retreat 
engagement questions that demand that people throw things into the Zoom chat. I I actually think the Zoom chat is a sort of a secret sauce of virtual gatherings that people are not taking full advantage of. So I, um, I'm all about the breaks. Um, but I, uh, that's, this, my, that's my advice. And, um, and depending on your organization, having some volunteer or somebody on your staff who, um, can uh, field technical questions is usually a pretty good idea as well. Um, but the bottom line here is don't wait. Don't wait that I argue that this is an ideal time for organizations to gather their troops together and start to talk about where the world is going, what are, you know, to, to ignite people around what have these challenging times made possible in our organization? What are we doing really well that we didn't do before because we have to? And how are we, how do we hold on to that in a post-COVID world? So I'm here to say, I want more board retreats. I want them to be designed well using the kinds of things Dolph is talking about. Uh, and, and I want you to, um, it could allow you to do them more frequently, frankly. Um, the other thing that it does is you save, if you're a national organization, your folks don't have to travel. And so you can have more of them. So again, um, you know, this is one of these things. If you come from a place of scarcity, your, your, your activities are going to look one way. But if you come from a place of abundance, they look very, very different. Um, we're going to save coaching for another day because we're almost out of time. But I, I wondered, Dolph, any closing thoughts about gatherings, board gatherings that you think we left out or you want to make sure that you amplify before we close out? The, the one thing I just want to amplify is the time that we invest as organizations in our board is time really well spent. And the return on that investment, it has multiples. You know, so if, so if you spend 10 hours on your board every month, you will get 30 hours worth out of your board every single month. And if you spend time making sure you have a good retreat, you are going to have a stronger board and a stronger organization. It's, um, it's about the quality of that time, isn't it? Right. If, if you, right. Um, if you spend, uh, if you 10 hours a month and five of them is uh, sending them, nagging them about something they didn't do that they ought to do, uh, that's not necessarily time well spent. Nagging your nagging your bosses is generally poor form, but um, you know, make this is a time to lead. I really think about this: is that so many organizations have had to pivot, adapt, overcome, and that requires intentional thought. And I think the 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 more that you interact with your board with a real sense of intention. Um, the more likely uh, you are to be able to be in a situation where your board um, not only delivers for you, but feels that sense of privilege and joy that board service actually ought to bring them. So with that said, Duff Goldenberg, I'm so delighted that you are with us. I'm glad that you're out there in the trenches. Um, There are so many nonprofit organizations that are so hungry for um, the kind of expertise that you bring. 
Um, and I'm glad that your, um, your lifetime dream of being a consultant has come true. And, um, and I'm delighted that you were able to join us uh, for this conversation. Dolph, thank you so much. Joan, thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. So that wraps it up for today. Um, that is uh, the wonderful world of board retreats with Joan and Dolph. Um, we're happy that you were able to join us. Um, please stay, stay, stay safe. Take care of yourself. If you heard Dolph talk about the fact that he burned out, went over the edge, have that be an object lesson for you. Do a check with your family. Do a check with your staff. Um, ask them how they think you are doing. And if they're worried about you, do something about that. Model the behavior you want to see in the people around you. Take good care of yourself. Um, stay healthy and strong. And thank you, as always, for the work that you do. Um, I don't know where our world would be without you. Take good care. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you found the conversation to be valuable. If you enjoyed the podcast, remember to subscribe to it. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave us a review. Turns out that reviews really matter. They help people discover the podcast. And if there's anything in this episode or any episode that really struck you as an aha moment, we'd love to know. Shoot us an email at podcast at joangary.com. And if you'd like to learn more about nonprofit leadership, head on over to my website at joangary.com. That's J-O-A-N-G-A-R-R-Y.com. It's full of advice and resources that you can put into action right away. And make sure to enter your email address so I can send you a surprise I think you'll find helpful. And if I haven't said it lately, thank you. Thank you so much for the important work you do every day to make this world a better place. I'll see you next time.